Before we start, a quick warning. This episode contains some swearing. I remember thinking two things when he punched me, one of which was, oh man, I'm going to be really late for work. But the other thing was, what did he mean about the United Nations? For most New Zealanders, political violence has always been something that happens in another country. They weren't normal screams then. They were right panicking. And then like when we looked down the road, there was a woman laid on the floor. Now, as we embark upon an election campaign, it's a clear and present danger in Aotearoa. I don't think I have a day here where I don't have threats and attacks. You give up reporting them. I, I, I live with security cameras on my house and nearly every angle you can come in. I think it is a very real threat. Miss and disinformation is rampant across online spaces, with the 2023 election campaign coming into view. It's even seeped into mainstream media like RNZ. It frequently fans racism, sexism, anti-Semitism. The list goes on. It ferments hatred and division. Experts, community leaders, and even people who've been active players in conspiracy theory networks are really worried about where it's taking us. There are the physical threats and violent acts, and then there is the corrosive impact on our democracy. Does anyone know what they're voting for anymore? If I had continued to believe what I was invited to believe, it was going to become a whole way of life of protests, of fear, of spreading misinformation. Who can you even trust if you can't rely on your own close family members? Whether it be in a family event or, or elsewhere, he's saying horrible things. It's uncomfortable. We want no part of that. We don't want any part of that at all, but you're father to these kids, right? So you're inevitably tied to us as a family. I'm Susie Ferguson, and this is Undercurrent, an RNZ documentary series on disinformation. Episode two, The Gateway. Recording in progress. Okay, good. Well, thank you very much for talking to me, and I'm sorry that it's not in real life, because uh, it's always nice to meet people in real life these days. Yeah, sorry that that didn't pan out, but I probably shouldn't be spraying germs of it. This is Matt Williams. There's evidence of conspiracy theories being shared all the way back to the ancient Romans, and you know, probably further back. I'm talking to him online, even though we were both in Auckland that day, as he felt like he was coming down with a cold, changed times because of COVID. He's a senior lecturer at Massey University who researches belief in conspiracy theories. Conspiracies absolutely happen. Tobacco companies in the second half of the, the 20th century did cover up evidence that their products caused harm. Yes or no, do you believe nicotine is not addictive? I believe nicotine is not addictive, yes. I don't believe that nicotine or our products are addictive. I believe nicotine is not addictive. Similar for fossil fuel producers covering up evidence of climate change. So our capacity to consider explanations for events that involve conspiracies is actually a good thing in many ways. And it can be useful for holding powerful groups to account when they do conspire to, to do harm. Not always, though. What happens when the theory is just that? A theory. And not grounded in fact. It's human nature to try to make sense of the world. But Matt says there are characteristics to the spiral. 
One of them is um, what we call an intentionality bias, that we as humans are particularly drawn to explanations of events that attribute them to intentional acts of other humans. Beyond that, like conspiracy theory is pretty entertaining, right? They often involve clear villains, conflict, mystery. They can be exciting, um, and that can be a reason why we're drawn to them. And lastly, conspiracy theory is often going to blame negative experiences on the actions of some kind of antagonistic or despised outgroup, such that by believing in the theory, we can perhaps feel better about our own in-groups. Exciting and a cracking yarn that can make us feel better about ourselves. That's pretty seductive. And if people are experiencing anything from a personal crisis, a death in the family, a relationship breakup, to, well, say a pandemic, this is where the vortex of the rabbit hole can spin and pull people in like a whirlpool. That can make the world seem a little bit more predictable and perhaps a safer place. And conspiracy theories can deliver apparent explanations for distressing events, and that can be part of the appeal. The irony of that, though, is that often if you accept a conspiracy theory as an explanation for some distressing circumstance, then now you've absorbed this belief that there are people that are trying to do harmful things, and quite often they're powerful groups that are specified in these theories. And that, in turn, can then actually end up making you more distressed than you were to start with. So it can become a vicious circle, seeking out more and more, each one informing the last. Can you hear me now? I'm going to plug them in. I mean, I would assume... Better with? It's better with them. OK, let's do that. Great. And what if the theory is fake or harmful? On another Zoom, I'm talking with New Zealand journalist Anka Richter. She's the author of Cult Trip, Inside the World of Coercion and Control. Conspiracy theories have a death toll. She's not just talking about the fireball at the siege of Waco or the Jonestown massacre. She's talking about conspiracy theories connected to COVID. Because they've led to many people refusing treatments and vaccinations that could have saved their lives. And of course, not every conspiracy theory does. If you believe in the moon landing or whether, you know, how JFK was murdered or so, it's probably not really going to have an effect on your life, but it could be a gateway drug to these bigger conspiracy theories and cuts. The pandemic threw the world into a huge temporary vulnerability. And it's not surprising that, sorry to say like this, but people lost their shit. Anka says people who didn't cope well in the isolation of lockdowns maybe had good reason not to put faith in authorities or doctors. Our internet surfing surged. And we're met with a barrage of information coming from people they suddenly thought they could trust because they were the wellness influencers, alternative health gurus. Anti-vax groups have actually now used the same recruiting techniques as cults. They withhold information or they distort information. This sort of information control that you see with anti-vax groups and their telegram channels and what, what's, what's sort of being filtered, the group think, and also fanaticism then that comes with that. Very similar to cults. There are more parallels with cults. As the pandemic progressed, a handful of people quickly gained followers and influence across different social media channels. They congealed ideas about wellness with paranoia, creating what sociologists have called conspirituality. Cults create martyrs. Am I pronouncing this right? Martyrs. Martyrs. 
matters. I am pronouncing that right, right? <laughs> Still some English words after all these years I suddenly struggle with. <laughs> and so so do, do these these conspirituality movements and the Hado anti-vaxxers, the ones that put themselves out there and then they're being persecuted by the mainstream media and they become these these heroes. Think of the former broadcaster Liz Gunn, who posts hour upon hour of conspiratorial monologues and interviews to her online channels. One other baby who was born at Christmas time who changed the world. Is this another one of those? And, and the lawyer Sue Gray, who speaks and writes at length about legal matters relating to the conspiratorial topic of the day. Just as a delay can create risk for this baby. They both took centre stage on what became a global news story about a baby whose parents refused to accept a blood donation for their child unless it was from a person unvaccinated against COVID-19. But they've still got the little sweetie pie right there that we can see on You think, what is driving these people? This, is, this goes way beyond your usual activism because you believe in something. This is like a religious fervour. That's the cultic part. So it's not about can people leave or not, or do they all live in a compound together, and do they all wear the same garb. It's, those are not the only markers of a cult or a cultic movement. It's far more psychological and often more, more subtle. And another one is the heroic backstory. And you find that a lot in the white wellness conspirituality movement as well, where people um, have had some kind of crisis, health crisis or healing experience themselves and then they become the ones who can tell the rest of the world how to do it and then they start peddling their products or their workshops, they become grifters. Cookie ideas about health and wellness might seem somewhat benign. If people are inclined to try something different to make them feel better, what's the harm, right? But it's the way these ideas and that feverish enthusiasm for them overlap with more sinister notions that's more of a concern. You'll remember Kate Hanna from the first episode of Undercurrent. She's director of the Disinformation Project. She suggests the tactic of community bridging is being used purposefully to overlap far-right ideologies in Aotearoa with the rest of the disinformation space here. A side order or taster of white supremacy with the main of COVID denialism or anti-mandate communities, if you like. She says people are being actively targeted. It's an absolutely reasonable description of what's going on at the moment. Uh, And it's radicalisation that's harder to see um, because it starts from really normative cultural prejudices, racism and misogyny. And so we're swimming in a soup of those things already and and them getting worse or the heat getting higher in the lobster pot. It's really hard to identify, but we have these moments where we can identify them and it is radicalisation. There have been a few of these moments since the pandemic began. In March, British anti-trans activist Kelly J. Keane Minchell, a.k.a. Posey Parker, visited New Zealand She had intended to speak at an event in Auckland, but cancelled after counter-protesters outnumbered her supporters. Days of angry, violent online rhetoric surrounded the event, before and afterwards. A lot of it came from what Kate Hanna calls the disinformation community focusing on trans people and their allies. Because we are seeing more and more New Zealanders prepared to use language 
that they wouldn't have used about people five years ago. And language, you know, people love to say things like sticks and stones won't break my bones. But language is the first indicator of genocidality. It's genocidal because it's about the eradication of a particular group of people. The Disinformation Project Sanjana Hatotua, also from the first episode, is from Sri Lanka. He grew up during the civil war between the Sinhala and the Tamil people. Because I've grown up in the midst of terrorism and war, I would say that no, we don't quite know and still understand what drives an individual to do extreme harms. What we do know, though, very clearly, are signals. The torture of animals, the dehumanisation, the language, the misogyny, the rhetoric, the mimetic use. We know this from Rwanda. We know this from the language that prefaced a genocide. We know this from Myanmar and the Rohingya. Where Facebook's accused of aiding and abetting genocide because the algorithms amplified hate speech, substantially contributing to the atrocities in 2017, according to Amnesty International. And the Rwanda reference? That's further back in history, to 1992, where Hutu politicians and people continually reduced the Tutsi tribal members in the country to cockroaches. That dehumanising language led to the deaths of 800,000 people. Donna Carson has two cats, but it's Harlow, a blue lovebird, that chirps for attention in her study. Considering what we're talking about, you might think she has a bluebird as a hat tip to Twitter, but seemingly it's purely a coincidence. Donna has a background in security and defence, and now researches political dissent and extremism. It's about white superiority, whites should run the world, you know, like Jewish people need to be... I guess a term that a lot of other supremacists use that I've seen is um, remigration, <laughs> you know, which is a polite word for genocide, and they, that's how they play with language. And so if you're an observer to that and you don't know what that means, you think, oh, that's not a very nice idea, but, you know, and you wander on, but you don't know the undercurrent underneath it. So that's how they get away with peddling one policies or kind of upholding Western culture or, you know, what's wrong with being white, you know, those kind of Trojan horse campaigns, as they're known as. And if you do challenge them, then you kind of get this social justice diatribe coming back at you or or humour to deflect. They're very good at using humour. Oh, I was just joking or, um, oh, no, that's not what I mean at all. So they're very hard to nail on some of their rhetoric, um, which is the point. The occupation of Parliament's grounds in early 2022 was to protest against COVID-19 vaccine mandates. The mandates were ended soon after, but the fury they evoked persists. Donna Carson has a theory as to why. I have started thinking recently about a thing called moral injury, where people feel something has injured their own sense of morals, and it's it causes quite a lot of psychological harm to that person, where I'm wondering if that's an element of what we're seeing playing out. Because when somebody feels morally routed in their thought, it gives them an extra emphasis for them and maybe an extra motivation to act. So even though the mandates are long gone, their legacy continues to be part of the social glue 
holding groups together. I'm just going to sit slightly closer to you yes. so that I'm not um, stretching my arm too much. Yes. There you go. Professor Paul Spoonley, a sociologist and co-director of Efenoa Taurikura, the National Centre of Research Excellence for Preventing and Countering Violent Extremism, says the pandemic might have been the tipping point, but the tide's been rising on white supremacy for years. He thinks many people are feeling marginalised. There's a, a sociological term called ontological security, and it's how we gain security because of having a sense of who we are and having confidence that that will guide us, that will um, help us navigate um, social, cultural and economic life. What I would suggest is that we've moved for many in our community into a space of ontological insecurity. They are feeling very, very unrecognised. They are feeling that the world is moving on. And these are where people are saying, this country is white, this country is British, and I'm now talking about New Zealand. Why are we giving so much attention to and resource to Māori? Why do we have to recognise Muslims in this country? They are not part of this country. Why are we um, adopting all of these policies to recognise the rainbow community, the trans community, gender rights or um, ethnic and, and indigenous rights in New Zealand? And so there's a community that's been around for a very long time. You saw it through the 1980s in terms of support for white South Africa or support for um, relations with uh, apartheid South Africa in terms of rugby. And it, it's gained a more modern form. And, of course, Trump gave voice to that. We have some bad hombres here, and we're going to get them out. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. I want surveillance of certain mosques, okay? If that's okay. I want to build a wall. We need the wall. And Mexico will pay for the wall. He made prejudice. He made... Um, the othering of people, of stereotyping and of attacking people, of being hostile to people, okay. And I think uh, you can see that in New Zealand. And you can see it at Parliament, but you can also see it in terms of the Three Waters debate or co-governance debates as well. And part of a revamped far right are online communities drawing women into a Nostalgic view of a traditional lifestyle and women's place in it. Like wellness and a reliance on natural health, it can be a gateway to white supremacy because of that community bridging. You know, the, the traditional lifestyle kind of cries out to conservative women and there's nothing wrong with being a traditional family, a traditional wife, stay-at-home mum, but... That's how the real extreme women connect with other women. They connect on similar worries about children. Um, they connect on concerns around education and health. Um, and then they can slide up that scale. But, you know, they, they're the kind of backbone to these movements. And they always have been, even though they're very patriarchal and chauvinistic and, you know, masculine, toxic, basically. Um, but women have a very, you know, they kind of negotiate your own power within these movements. And it's quite empowering to somebody to become suddenly 
you know, the woman of the movement um, and to have some power in, in spreading that kind of theme. And, you know, the white supremacist female, she deliberately uses crafts to target other women, to bring them in. And she deliberately doesn't talk about politics, but she connects on women's roles and how they can support men. Um, so anti-feminism has become a major kind of cornerstone or subculture, which women can use to recruit other women, or they can use it to kind of get the attention of of men in the movement. And they don't see that as being misogynistic. They don't see it as being toxic. They kind of reframe it as chauvinistic, as caring, um, as women taking the burden off men um, so that their men can go out and provide, which is, you know, it sounds lovely and fluffy if you use the right language and use the right imagery, but it's quite dangerous. The imagery seen on social media is usually white, Pakeha. Gender seen as binary, and while not explicitly fascist, can give rise to racism, homophobia and transphobia. It's a way of laundering the far right to catch another group of people in the rip. You might be thinking, this doesn't sound like the kind of thing that can happen here. Think again there are indicators that white supremacy could be falling onto very fertile ground. There are over 750 followers of far-right Facebook pages per 100,000 internet users in Aotearoa, compared with around 400 in Australia and under 250 in either the US or the UK, according to a report commissioned by the Department of Internal Affairs. And those figures are from 2020 before this torrent. Whenever the weather is this bad, the internet here is pretty awful. Let me try one more internet channel. <laughs> the internet does not want us to have this core at all. This is Tina Ngata, Māori Indigenous human rights activist. I will be very thankful, but very surprised if we get through this year being an election year uh, without somebody getting seriously hurt or worse. She's based in Tairawhiti, and the aftermath of Cyclone Gabrielle made travel to her rohe pretty tricky. So we meet online on a pretty ropey connection instead of kanohi kite kanohi. You know, a lot of the people that are at the greatest risk right now, they're the ones that are actually doing the work that I would see government as being responsible or doing in terms of standing up to hate. So a perfect example is that our immigration policies allowed a uh, somebody... She's talking about Posey Parker. Somebody who is closely associated to hate groups and has um, been spreading messages of hate herself into the country, which then created the potential for great harm to take place. And it has actually heightened and it remains at an increased level now, even though they've gone. Tina's clear on who she's most worried about. It is people who are... Uh, outspoken against hate forums in the first place, particularly forums around, you know, white supremacy, issues around transphobia, Islamophobia, and all of those spaces also include strong anti-Semitic themes as well. So, you know, the hate particularly towards marginalised women and transgender communities is rife at the moment. I'm really worried, 
particularly if you are um, sitting at an intersection of those spaces. So we have a number of people who sit at the intersection of those spaces who are Indigenous, are trans or women who or people of colour, and they also are outspoken. And the more intersections that you sit at, the higher risk that you face. And while the visit of anti-trans activist Posey Parker held the mainstream media gaze for a few days, the ripple effect was much longer and larger in the social media world. Growth continues of New Zealand disinformation pages on Facebook, up to almost 1.3 million likes on the latest count, according to the Disinformation Project. And its research shows the most prolific accounts generated over one and a half times more engagement per post than content published by mainstream journalism. That's despite established media outlets in New Zealand having a greater following by some magnitude than disinformation accounts. And while the mainstream media moved on, the topic persisted for days and weeks, still generating conversation in the splintered reality. Next time on Undercurrent... And within that group, they'd go on about QAnon, what now has become like the anti-trans agenda. Yeah, exposed to what I now see as conspiracies. Voices from within the disinformation community. There was a lot of white supremacy around this. If I could say that shocking phrase, white supremacy. But there was this, this real belief that I'm healthy, therefore why should I do anything? New Zealanders who've been drawn in and found a way out. Tell us how they got there, what they found, and what frightens them most now. Undercurrent is an RNZ series created, produced and presented by me, Susie Ferguson. It was written by Susie Ferguson and John Hartfelt. It features the voices of Vivian Bell, Richard Chapman, Francesca Ems and Carmel McGlone, produced with Duncan Smith. The studio engineers are William Saunders and Mark Chesterman. The executive editor is John Hartfelt. For more information and resources, visit our website, rnz.co.nz slash undercurrent.